Welcome back to the Courtside Podcast. I, <laughs> I, 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 I really don't know <laughs> I mean, how to start this off. Celtics down 3-0 against Miami. Series is now tied 3-0. And Game 6, a madhouse in South Beach. We're going to go into that one. And of course, as well, uh, I wasn't really able to uh, cover the end of the Western Conference Finals. So I'm going to go a little bit as well into Denver. And of course, you know, we have to talk a little bit about the Lakers. I'm not going to talk too much about the Lakers um, and their offseason plans. However, a lot of Denver talk, a lot of potential matchups uh, for the Denver Nuggets in their first ever NBA Finals appearance against either Miami or Boston, which again, that will go to a Game 7. But we'll jump into that series and more on this episode of Courtside. The Courtside Podcast is brought to you by YouTube channels Highway Temptation and Captain Barbo, who make content on YouTube weekly. Captain Barbo has been recently getting more stuff out with Elden Rings, and he has a bunch of series going out. Honestly, if you're just looking to watch videos while you eat and you're looking for entertainment, you will not be disappointed. This guy is upcoming. He's already at 2,000 uh, followers himself, multiple 1,000 plus views on his videos, and incredible quality. So don't forget to check him out. And of course, if you're looking for a little bit more homegrown cooking here, uh, How in Temptation, they decided to go away from their Sonic review platform and now do into, you know, gameplay of Jack in the Box, which they had a really funny one recently where they really bashed into one another. But of course, family fun, all great stuff. And from the editing process, from the content they make, it's kind of like that homegrown farm. You know what I mean? Straight chickens out on the field. It feels that type of content. So don't forget to look for those YouTube channels. And of course, if you haven't, subscribe to the podcast. Whenever I do a podcast like this, I always look back at every single game in a playoff series. When I look back to the first three games, it was just dominance for the Miami Heat, and especially the main guys in the series. Besides Jimmy Butler, who has had 20-point games and a 35-point game in game one of the series, uh, which I mentioned before in my recent last podcast, um, you looked at Caleb Martin. He had, you know, 25 off the bench in game two. Look at Gabe Vincent, 29 career high in the playoffs and all as a starter and funny enough throughout this entire season you know Gabe Vincent has really grown himself especially with the starting minutes he's been able to get thanks to coach Spo uh, realizing it over the veteran presence of Kyle Lowry and he's been kind of Kyle's been kind of regressing a little bit offensively but this Miami Heat team looked like they were ready to go on their way to travel plans to Denver however the Boston Celtics they were able to regroup themselves and the funniest thing about it game four before even going to game four, Marcus Smart, Jalen Brown was telling the media, don't let us get one. Don't let us get one. Halfway through the game, he were up leading at halftime. And the Celtics were later kind of regressing back. Then out of nowhere, the third quarter happens, and they explode on offense. Tatum goes off. Jalen Brown goes up. Derek White actually finally wakes up since the beginning of the first round in the playoffs. I mean, the Celtics were able to make it out of Miami with a double-digit win. Go to Game 5, dominate Game 5 the majority of the way, uh, thanks to a blowout first quarter where they went on a, almost like a 20-plus run uh, in that first quarter to open up the game. But Game 6 comes in. Miami going to Game 6, up 3-2 in the series. Butler saying everything's going to be all right. Even singing his way, saying that after the loss in Game 4. Kept on telling media, hey, we're going to go win and win this series. This game felt like... They were going to win this series. I watched the replay of the entire game. I mean, I'm, I'm, of course, I'm going to jump into stats. But this time, instead of saying the beginning, I'm going to jump into it after the fact. The opening minutes of this game were going back and forth. I mean, Gabe Vitz had a really good start. Caleb Martin himself went four straight baskets without missing. Um, and then you look at some of the all-stars on this team. Bam Adebayo, who has been defended well the last three games. So even not even get the ball down low in the attempts. Guy's getting him right in front of him off the switch, kind of closing in on him to make sure there's no passing room for him. But Jimmy Butler himself, he couldn't really get a shot off unless he was driving inside into guy's chest or just in general wasn't hesitating when taken to the hole. The Miami Heat and the Boston Celtics looked like a heavyweight match to start off game six until the Celtics with the help of Marcus Smart and Derek White, who are actually, I'm again, I'm going to go into the stats later on, but the only two Celtics to make threes in this game. It was a poor shooting knife overall for the Celtics. Again, I'll go into the numbers later on. Just know that it was only two players that were working behind the arc. So they decided to go inside. And Jason Tatum, the thing that I found was really a huge improvement for the Celtics after game three, the ball movement. 
They're actually moving the ball. They're taking good shots. They're not just hucking up threes, waiting and praying that the, the job gets done. They actually moved the ball. They were about shooting 70% at halftime uh, from two-point shots and below 30% from three at halftime. Um, so you look at basically the Celtics. They're attacking the basket more. Bam Adebayo is doing the best he can. But Jason Tatum, phenomenal performance for him. He was able to get to the line a lot. However, really efficient, fadeaway jumpers. And the game kept on going back and forth until midway through the second where the Celtics were able to get a runoff thanks to Jalen Brown. Speaking of which, Jalen Brown, 10 points, 4-6 and six to start in this game. Unfortunately for the Celtics, he was in foul trouble to start off as well. And he didn't play a majority of minutes in that second quarter. However, he was able to get the job done. The Celtics' big two were able to combine for more than 30 points in just the first quarter alone. So for the Celtics, they were able to get an 11 to almost 12-point lead. And then the last four minutes, he went on a run. And this run, um, from at least what I saw, besides, of course, the Celtics not able to answer bad. They had a couple of layups that were just kind of running in there without any control of the basket at their hip. A lot of it was just because Grant Williams defensively was a liability. I think Grant Williams in general in this game was a liability. What do you know, like one point? I mean, I'm going to go into it. But the Celtics were able to give the Heat a lot of chances based on their you know guys going inside and the defense closing in on guys inside from the Miami Heat. And then the Heat players bouncing it out to Caleb Martin from three, for Gabe Vincent for three. And then, of course, Max Struess and Duncan Robinson uh, for three. However, Duncan Robinson didn't really pop up until the fourth quarter in this game. But the Miami Heat were able to get themselves on, I believe it was a 12-something run on the last four minutes, last three minutes, and able to salvage only a four-point deficit against the Celtics. Celtics led 57-53 to at halftime, and it was one of those quarters where you ask yourself, man, the Celtics really could have left this game behind. You're up 12. Little momentum is switching offensively for you guys. And the Celtics unable to answer back to the Miami Heat threes, which Miami, they had a really phenomenal night from three-point range. Which, funny enough, a majority of the time in this series alone, the winner of the three-point is usually the winner of the game. But going to halftime, close game still. Celtics only up by four. And then the third quarter comes in, and it was a defensive masterclass. Both teams were unable to really get anything going for them. I'm not going to lie to you. It was a little bit frustrating watching both of these sides because you got open shots from the Miami Heat. They were missing them. And then you also have the Miami Heat still trying to attack the basket to switch up. And the Celtics themselves, I mean, again, the three-point shooting was terrible for the Boston Celtics. They weren't able to get much or less any help in the second half from behind the arc. Um, but to give you the idea... The third quarter scoring. Celtics scored 22 points in that quarter. The Heat with only 19. Only 19. And the funny thing about it, the highest scoring quarter for the Boston Celtics was the first quarter, which was also the highest scoring quarter for any team in this game. So the Celtics, after a hot start, they just declined. They really did decline. Uh, but it was a definitely a big masterclass defensive game. I mean, you even saw things in the second half, like Al Horford stepping up against Bam Adebayo, and of course, Jimmy Butler as well. However, the last three seconds, a little controversial with Al Horford's defense. Um, and also included even a you know a Horford block on Bam, which I can't believe Horford's like 38-something years old, hitting 40 soon. Um, but still, the Celtics themselves, they were able to still lead and improve their lead uh, up to 10 at one point in the second half. And then the Miami Heat... And almost, a, I mean, this got to be a copyrighted thing by now. Like, this has got to be a statement. Miami Heat, late run. Everyone's expecting it. And I said in the last podcast, I'm expecting one crazy game out of the Heat. This was that crazy moment in this crazy game for the Miami Heat. The Miami Heat went on a 16, I believe, 16 and something run in the last four minutes. And it was all off the hands of two players, in my opinion. Jimmy Butler. Being aggressive, taking it inside, making sure, hey, if we're going to get shots off, I'm shooting threes. I'm going to go off to the right side of the wing where I'm doing my best work. I'm not doing these fadeaway jumpers no more. I'm going to take the crazy shots because I have to take crazy shots. But speaking of which, Duncan Robinson, in this game, these last few minutes of this game, stellar. And just to give you an idea about how crazy of a game Duncan Robinson had at the end of the fourth quarter, I'm going to just talk about his stats coming off the bench. Playing 20 minutes in this game off the bench. He had 13 points leading the way for the Miami Heat's bench. 
was 5-11 from the floor, 3-6 from three. Those three three-pointers were alone in the fourth quarter. And these were back-to-back threes where you have situations like he's coming off off-ball screens. The Celtics are, again, guys are biting on the inside. And there's open three-pointers easily for the Miami Heat to convert on. And Duncan Robinson, at one point in this game, even controlled tempo. I mean, he was taking it inside onto guys. And especially off-ball movement with the Miami Heat. They, that's their bread and butter, especially back in game two. That was their bread and butter. The off-ball movement to get open guys inside the paint. Duncan Robinson gave the Miami Heat a lead uh, at one point in this game, which again, this is a game that was back and forth, believe it or not, throughout the entire way, but only had six lead changes. Crazy to think. Uh, But Duncan Robinson himself, he was stellar until two threes came. As I mentioned before, three and six from behind the arc, but two of those three that he missed were potential game-changing threes. I'm looking at it right now, like 3.30 or so minutes left in the game. Duncan Robinson hooks up a three, and this is a wide-open three that just, you know, rims out, right? Doesn't make it inside, back of the iron. He does another one deep into the game where it's just the Miami Heat, I think they're right there, if not down a point, maybe down two points. Um, Duncan misses another three, and then Marcus Smart, he gets the rebound off that. And there's 16 seconds left. And at this point in the game, it is, I think the Celtics up by one here, 101 to 100, 16 point something seconds remaining. And Marcus Smart goes to the free throw line, immediately fouled. He makes one of two. And again, free throws in the NBA, especially in the NBA playoffs, they're a huge reason why teams win and why teams lose. In this situation, this is where it gets really controversial. The Miami Heat's last possession on offense resulted in Jimmy Butler going down the floor with Al Horford in almost similar fashion to Game 7 of last year's Eastern Conference Finals. Al Horford with the assignment to guard up against Jimmy Butler. And it was Jimmy Butler, he was on the wing, made his way to the elbow, and they kept on driving, but Al was not giving him room. And the weird thing about Al Horford, defensively, when you really look at his game, he instead of putting two arms up and just sliding with guys, which obviously would lead to a blocking foul, he slides as well, great defensive stance, however, puts an arm out Whenever he's defending a guy, no matter where he's at, whether that's in the paint, trying to get a steal, which did result in a Jimmy Butler and one uh, going down the Heat's run offensively down the stretch of this game. But in this situation, Al Horford takes his arm out, making sure that Butler does not have a lane to drive in, but Butler's thinking about other things. As I mentioned before, he was taking the crazy shots. He was looking for threes. And Jimmy Butler went up on a, and this was a shot I don't even think was even going to get close to getting in. But you never know with the Miami Heat. Jimmy Butler, on a fadeaway, going out in full force, tosses up a three-point shot attempt, and Al Horford fouls him with 2.1 on the clock as it was called beginning of it. And then Joe Mazzulla says, oh, no, he got ball. He got ball. I'm pretty sure he tipped it. So they look at the review. So Jimmy Butler, again, he was bound to get basically shots from the free throw line, whether that will be a two shots or three shots. Joe Mazzulla was looking at, did Al Horford kind of rip the ball a little bit? Was it on the line? It was obviously clearly a three-point shot attempt. It was way behind the arc. But the interesting part about this, the interesting part is the fact that it was something in that challenge that wasn't even supposed to be looked at. But the referee saw it and they fixed it. And myself as well, I slowed down the game. I double-checked everything. To make sure how accurate it was that the referees were calling on the seconds. However, when Al Horford made contact with Jimmy Butler, it looked like from his left hand going up when Butler was in the shooting motion, I believe it might have, I don't know if it did or not, but from the angle that I was looking at, it might have hit the top of his head. And that was when Al Horford forced contact onto Jimmy Butler with three seconds. And then 2.8 seconds come, and then you see the arms finally getting onto Jimmy Butler's, you know, his own arms there. So off of that, the referees in this game end up going out of their way and say, unsuccessful challenge, however, we're going to move back the time as it looked like Jimmy Butler was fouled with three seconds remaining on the clock. And for me personally, my calculations is, you know, that three second to 2.8. But either way, even a 0.2 seconds was enough to decide this game. And we'll go into that right now. Jimmy Butler knocks down three straight three throws. From the charity stripe, it looks like the game's over. Three seconds remaining. Celtics call timeout, side out. Joel Mazzulla 
his basically his job on the line here. Trying to do a whole Brad Stevens, you know, side out play that needs to be either a three or of course a two to save the season, go to overtime. And the biggest thing about this moment, there's two big things. One, of course, the finish from the Boston Celtics. And two, the defense. And Miami Heat guard Max Strews. Because there's a lot of people that are saying he was doing the wrong thing. But at the same time, Eric Spoelstra had him doing something else that people weren't expecting to happen. The Boston Celtics getting about the ball to Marcus Smart. They had about like four seconds before they get the five second violation. They were trying to find Tatum, who was getting double teamed by Max Strews. And I forgot the player, which I do apologize. But it was Max Strews and another Heat player on top of the key. Marcus Smart gets the ball on a crazy jump shot attempt that nearly went in. It was a fadeaway off two guys, and it rolled out to the left side of the rim. However, with Max Struess, I mentioned before, two players on Jason Tatum, Derek White's inbounding the ball to Marcus Smart. White immediately goes to the corner, the left side corner, and the moment that the shot is up, he just drives inside. He doesn't wait for it to go to hit the rim, nothing like that. Derek White follows Marcus Smart's shot, and with point three seconds left in the game, he grabs it up midair of the ball going out of the rim, and then he puts it back in with about 0.2, 0.1 seconds left in the game, and he gets a buzzer beater victory for the Boston Celtics to win it out 104 to 103 in game six in Miami to force a game seven, an improbable, just an insane series that I don't think anybody expected this that even happened, let alone this series to be something that we get in the playoffs. But now we can go into the Max Struess part of this. Now, I do want to apologize. I wasn't able to listen a lot about Eric Spolstra after the game in his media press conference. However, I'm pretty sure somebody asked him about that last defensive stand for the Miami Heat to make it to the NBA Finals if they were able to successfully stop the Celtics. Max Struess, as I mentioned before, double-teaming Tatum with another Heat player on top of the perimeter. There's a reason why he was doing that. This, the Miami Heat were trying to make sure, hey, they're going to give the ball to Jason Tatum. It's kind of obvious at this point. Let's go get two guys on him. And if he does get the ball off the inbound, let's make sure we make this three seconds hell for him and get double teams on every single shot from three. Max Drews did his job. Now, for Eric Spolstra, you don't, because again, do not blame Max Drews. Guy's talking about, oh, he got a box out. Oh, where's Strews on that? Why did we leave a guy wide open to go inside? You know, this is on Eric Spolstra here. Why would Eric Spolstra have two guys on Jason Tatum? Again, understandable reasons. Tatum, 30-plus point game in this one. And he's, you know, at the end of the day, I mean, if anyone's going to make that shot, it's JT. And as well as Jalen Brown. They got a lot of great guys on the Celtics team offensively. However, if I'm Eric Spolstra, you just need one stop. Man-to-man defense should be enough. And for Max Struess, I even had a couple of Heat fans uh, that I discussed with after the game talk about why is Max Struess in the last part of this game helping out defensively? Highsmith, who had a phenomenal game five offensively as well, defensively going against Jason Tatum and a couple of the wing players of the Boston Celtics. He had a great game and he didn't see a single minute in game six. Why is Max Struess on the court there playing defense? That I'm not too positive. I can't answer for Heat fans. Um, however, from the sense of what was drawn up defensively, I can only imagine. Eric Spolstra wanted to make sure Tatum did not get a chance, and he did. However, it came back to bite him. Derek White, who in Game 5 led the Boston Celtics in scoring with 24 points, only had 11 points in Game 6. And the ones that put him to double digits was enough. He made the layup off the offensive rebound, put the ball up with plenty of time, 0.1 seconds. It was clearly off of his hands. And the Boston Celtics stole and survive after having double-digit leads twice in this game. Stole and survive. Game 6, down 3-0. They force a Game 7, which will be back in Boston on Monday, Memorial Day. It, this is an insane turnout. This game was high intense. I think the calls and the referees, I mean, honestly, there were times where they let the guys play out. However, at the end, the Miami Heat were just getting foul after foul after foul just down the stretch of the game where you have free throws, keeping this Heat team alive late. Um, but the referee itself, this is one of the better games, I think, in this postseason in the sense of officials. Um, you know, for the people that talk about, all oh, the NBA's rigs, you know, Scott Foster, this and that. And also the weird thing about, there's like a referee that's getting checked up 
I think it's Eric Lewis, the referee, but he's getting checked up on Twitter to have a burner account, which is just insane. I mean, I, why even are you on Twitter if you're a referee? And the weirdest part about it, like, in the middle of the playoffs, we're looking at this. You know, we got a whole NBA finals to go. And they're doing this investigation, which is, again, turmoil in the NBA as usual. Uh, however, now let's look at the stats itself of the Celtics 104 to 103 victory. As I mentioned before, uh, the Boston Celtics had the highest scoring quarter in the first quarter with 34 points. And the Miami Heat, they were getting outmastered on defense. I think the Boston Celtics throughout the past three games, defensively, they've gone back to the reason why they're a 57 win team in the regular season. A huge part of their defensive identity. Uh, when you look at the, uh, my apologies, when you look at the Miami Heat in this game throughout, first quarter, 29 points, they're right there, down five against the Celtics in the first quarter, and then later on, 24 points in the second. 19 in the third, and then the fourth quarter where they had that huge run off the hands of Duncan Robinson and Jimmy Butler, 31 points in that one. It was nearly enough, except for Derek White at the end, to make a comeback. But now let's look at the box scores itself. I'm going to first break down the Miami Heat in this one. Jimmy Butler finished, and again, this is a good stat line, of a 46 minutes. He basically just got rest for like a minute and a half in this game. 24 points, 11 rebounds. Eight assists, a steal as well in the middle of that. And the only issue is, though, a majority of his points came from the free throw line. Again, this is Jimmy Butler who's just driving inside. He's not hesitating this time around this game six. But at the charity stripe, he went 12 and 14. He had 14 attempts from the free throw line. That's 85%. You know what it was from the floor overall? 5 and 21. And the crazy part about it, the five shots he did make, were two clutch threes, one in the beginning of the game where Jason Tatum was kind of like setting back on defense. They wanted Butler to shoot that. And then the second one, of course, being down the stretch in this game where it was a crucial three that was making the game back to a two-possession um, contest. But for Jimmy Butler to only go and do 23.8% from the floor, you need more out of JB. You need more out of Jimmy Butler. Jimmy Buckets, as he's called. He had a 50-plus point game in the first round, multiple 40-point games, had a huge stride in the Knicks series, and then, of course, game one, he had that 30-piece. But, man, this is like the last three games. I don't think he shot better than 40% from the floor in the last three games. And this goes as well for Bam Adebayo, who, again, has been playing a pretty good series so far. However, the Celtics just not giving him enough chances to get attempts at the rim. And they really shut down Bam. This was like the worst Bam game, I think, of this series. 11 points, 13 rebounds, 5 assists. And he did get a block and a steal. He was active defensively. I'm not going to lie to you on that, especially on the offensive rebounds. When you look at the rebounding itself, uh, Bam Mabio had 7. And believe it or not, those 7 tied as well with Jimmy Butler for the most offensive rebounds on the team. However, if you look at really the attempts he was getting on the floor throughout the game, uh, we're talking about high contested shots. He was either making mid-range, taking inside, putbacks on second-chance points, or just in general keeping the Heat alive by, you know, just taking the mismatches inside whenever he got them. But when you look at his stat line at the end of this game, 3-4 and four from the free-throw line, 75%. And from the floor, 4-16. and 16. He shot 25% from the floor, a majority of them being jump shots, and a majority of them high-contested attempts for mid-range. This Celtic defense has not been able to get Bam into this series since Game 3. And again, Bam Adebayo has been pretty good. Whenever he has the ball, I feel like, hey, this is a guy that can really take over in the midst of the game. But the Celtics have not allowed that through these past three games at all. I don't think Bam Adebayo has even had more than 25, let alone 20 points in the past three games. I'll have to double check on that. Um, however, the rest of the starting lineup itself, they also had Max Struess and Gabe Vincent. Gabe Vincent coming back from a rolled ankle a little ankle injury there he was wearing like two braces on his ankles he was shut down in this one he played 41 minutes in this 15 points 6 and 18 from the floor shooting 3 and 6 from 3 and in the sense of moving the ball around you got zero assist as Damian Lillard fashion since game three Gabe Vincent has been this offensive masterclass guy with the ball 
where he's able to get opportunities driving inside and passing guys such as Grant Williams and Derek White and Al Horford, who has sometimes made that switch on him. He's been playing great basketball. Unfortunately, though, in this game, he was not making those threes like he did in game three. And I'm not going to go into the Duncan Robinson part because I already did uh, previously when I'm talking about that fourth quarter. But what I would go to end off for the Miami Heat, I thought this was kind of an underrated moment. And there are moments in this game where Kyle Lowry has, you know, he blunders, right? There was even one where, like, he turned off the ball trying to get a rebound with Bam and Abayo, and they just both watched the ball hit the baseline and be Celtics basketball under their own rim. But Kyle Lowry in this game, after 18 minutes coming off the bench, he was a huge veteran presence. He had three assists in this game, but three crucial assists. He was taken inside late in the game, going baseline during that heat run in the fourth quarter. He was going baseline. He was putting shots up, highly contested against Marcus Smart and Jalen Brown. Uh, and then he also was able to find Duncan Robinson, who was cutting in on the off ball. That was one of the big layups to really keep the heat alive, only down like two to one points. Just in general, the guy was making basketball plays when the Miami Heat needed a facilitator on the floor. A lot of these heat baskets that we had throughout this entire game was just isolation. There was not really any ball movement. There's a very just randomized offense of the Miami Heat and Eric play, which is a little bit frustrating watching this team because when they make shots, they really do make shots. Like, there's no doubt about that. But this team is best when they're playing with ball movement. So the Miami Heat themselves, Kyle Lowry gave them a little bit of an edge. As I mentioned before, Kyle Lowry had only 18 minutes in this game, 8 points, 2 rebounds, 3 assists, and 3 steals. Uh, and was 3-6 and six on the floor shooting, so you can't really blame much of this game for him. Uh, but in the sense of plus-minus, like that efficiency stuff, he was only plus-1. The best one out of this entire Heat squad was a plus-8 out of Duncan Robinson, and the lowest was a negative-12 for Max Struess. Max Struess with only 10 points and 37.5 from the floor shooting. So... The Miami Heat themselves, they had the better three-point shot night. Uh, the Miami Heat overall shot 46% from three. And now let's go to the Boston Celtics from three. As I mentioned before, only Derek White and Marcus Smart were making shots behind the arc. Look at Derek White himself. He was three and seven from three. Marcus Smart, huge time threes. However, he kept on shooting them. It was 4-11 from three-point range. Insane numbers. Absolutely insane. However, in a game that the Celtics really needed every single shot to go in, those threes mattered for Marcus Smart, and especially built up on some Celtic runs. But you look at the team overall from behind the arc. From three-point range themselves, the Boston Celtics shot 20%. 20% from three. Unheard of. Jalen Brown 0-4 from behind the arc. Jason Tatum 0-8, and these were bad-looking threes from Tatum. 0-2 from Al Horford. He had a couple of chances. Grant Williams. Grant Williams off the bench. What, were he, what was he doing? It felt like Malcolm Brogdon just came... From injury and said, hey Grant, I've been playing pretty bad. I'm going to put that on you now. Grant Williams in this one, off of 22 minutes off the bench, 1 point, 3 rebounds, 1 assist, 0-4 from the floor, 0-3 from 3, and majority of them were open 3s for Grant, 1-2 from the free throw line. These, This is not the type of game you need out of a former SEC defensive stagnant like Grant Williams. For the Boston Celtics, you need him to pick up. And a lot of the times, he was forcing the Boston Celtics to be in tough situations due to his poor defense off-ball as well. The moment that you saw guys drive inside for the Miami Heat, who they do pass it out to open threes as you probably should. I mean, that's like a 2K generic type of thing to understand. Grant Williams went to follow guys all the time. There's even one moment where Caleb Martin had an open three in the corner. And you have Derek White just chasing him on the baseline. And he's yelling at Grant, get him, get him, switch, switch, switch. Grant doesn't listen. He's on Butler. He looks around, you know, that, that's just a frustrating communication where you have just to understand that, hey, maybe Grant Williams didn't hear or maybe Grant Williams just didn't understand. In those type of moments, you need to be able to live up to the hype, understand that this is for the season, for your team being that of the Boston Celtics for Grant Williams. So Grant Williams, he was just a horrible game all around. Uh, when you look at the plus minus, they gave him a positive two, which I don't understand. He had a terrible, terrible game, in my opinion. The worst game out of any of the Celtics in this one. However, if you also look at the bench itself, there was not a lot of help from the bench. And this is a Celtic team which had a 7-8 to eight man rotation going into this series. You also you saw Sam Hauser minutes for a little bit while they were trying to rest up Tatum, which I actually liked from Joe Mazzulla and the Boston Celtics. 
because Sam Hauser, he was a huge part in the regular season of why the Celtics were like one of these more, you know, prominent three-point shooting teams. Uh, from this game alone, unfortunately, Sam Hauser, for himself, he wasn't even able to get a shot off uh, in this game. But either way, though, only 11 points off the bench because of Rob Williams III, uh, having 10 points himself, 7 rebounds, and 4 and 5 from the floor. It was a pretty dominant night for him. But besides that, it was majority of the Celtics starters who throughout the last three games has seen heavy minutes as performed on some of the biggest stages in the East. Jason Tatum in this one led the team to scoring 31 points, 12 rebounds, 5 assists. And defensively, he was as well active, having two blocks and a steal under his name. Um, you look at the shots he took from the floor. A lot of them were great mid-range jumpers, especially in that second quarter. He was not even, he, I don't even think he got a basket in the fourth. I think it went 0-7, 0-8 in the fourth quarter. I'm not too positive. Which, uh, funny enough, this has been kind of a subject throughout this entire series. Jason Tatum, as well as Jalen Brown, struggling to score in the fourth quarter. Uh, however, you look overall at his game, 8-22 uh, and 22 from the field, shot at 36.4% clip. And then from three, as I mentioned before, 0-8. Not the best shooting-wise. However, from the free throw line, he was active. 15 of 15 shots from the charity stripe. That went in. And again, similar to Jimmy Butler, two All-Stars getting a majority of their shots from the charity stripe. However, Jason Tatum during the game, especially in the first half, was on fire. I think he had like 25 points or whatnot just to start off the game, if not 21. Uh, but now also, speaking of which, we go to Marcus Smart, who finished with 21 points in this one from playing 42 and a half minutes just about. 21 points, as mentioned before, with the threes. He was uh, knocking the majority of them down for the Boston Celtics off of 11 attempts from behind the arc. Four rebounds, one assist. He wasn't really, again, the Boston Celtics do move the ball around. They have great ball movement. And it did show the beginning of this game in that first quarter run for the Seas. However, Marcus Smart, who's usually facilitating everything, one assist in this one, 7.15 from the floor. Celtics, two points, layups, attacking the rim. Marcus Smart in cast did everything in the middle of that. Jalen Brown, 26 points, 10 rebounds. And 10, just about half of his points came off at a hot start in the first quarter. Insane hot stop in the first quarter. Finished with 9-16 from the floor. Shot better than 50% from the floor. However, 0-4 from 3. You look at Al Horford. Al Horford. I don't know what's going on with Al. Offensively, you know, he calls himself an elite shooter like he did in the second round against Philadelphia. 4 points, 7 rebounds, 2 assists. He got 2 blocks, though. One of them being a huge one against Bam and Obayo, as I mentioned before. However, 2-6 from the floor shooting. 1-3 to have a clip. Of a night for him. Not too well from your starting center. And Derek White, as I mentioned before, 11 points in this one, played 42 minutes, four rebounds, six assists, a steal, and three blocks. He even a big block against Jimmy Butler. He stepped up on the assignment against the best player on the Miami Heat's roster and defended Jimmy well. So, from going to the stat line itself for the Boston Celtics, I would say it was more their defense that saved this game than really their offense. They were struggling from three. You know, the team that usually wins the three-point battle in this series is usually the winner. However, defensively, they got in front of guys. They made the right switches. Besides Grant Williams' off-ball defense, biting on the Miami Heat players that drove in and getting Grant Williams to follow behind to leave guys open from three, the Miami Heat did their best. However, the Celtics' defense really did step up on one-on-one isolation plays. They really did. But now we look at a Game 7. Back in Beantown for the Boston Celtics to host Game 7. And funny enough, there's only been a handful of teams to go down 3-0 and then force a Game 7. None of those teams has ever hosted the Game 7. And all of those teams lost on the road in Game 7. The Boston Celtics, the first team down 3-0, and this time hosting a Game 7, they will be the first team to do it, potentially, if they do win. To not only host a Game 7 being a down 3-0 in a series, however, also win a series previously being down 3-0 for the first time in NBA history. There's been a, more than 160 teams that do that type of situation and unable to get over the hump of winning four straight. The Boston Celtics have a chance to make history. And this has been just one of those magical runs where you have to ask yourself, do Celtics, does Boston sports have one always in them? Like the Red Sox in the early 2000s. Then there's also situations where the Boston Bruins were down 3-1 against, um, I forgot which team, but this was 
not too long ago, within this decade. There's been situations where we've seen Boston Celtics and Boston sports in general come back down in, like, in huge ways. I mean, you look at like round two. You know, let's go recent. Round two, the Boston Celtics down 3-2. Horrible shooting performance in game five and got blown out of their own building really at the end. Then game six comes in. JT saves it. Another close game six. And then they go into game seven. And as we all know, Jason Tatum, 51 point, a quick nifty, as they would call it. Jason Tatum, 51 points to beat out the Philadelphia 76ers in a blowout victory in game seven of round two to go into this Eastern Conference final against Miami. Is it, it, Can we get to see a repeat of that? Now, this is going to be the hardest game of the entire series. If you thought game six was any bit harder, it's not going to be a cakewalk for Boston. You're talking about a Miami Heat team who have lost three straight, looking down the barrel right now of being the first team ever, ever to lose a 3-0 lead in a series. I'm telling you right now, the Celtics, again, they had this great mentality of one game, just one game, one after another, onto the next. At the end of the day, the Miami Heat, they they got this situation where they've been improving throughout these losses, right? We're, I mean, we're not looking at this Miami Heat team and saying, yeah, the Miami Heat are getting blown out every single game. Like game six, they could have easily won that one. And again, a poor shooting night from the Celtics, only shooting 20% from three. However, for the Miami Heat themselves, the only thing I would have to say, Butler and Bam and Abayo, throughout this entire last three games, has not stepped up. It's been Caleb Martin, Gabe Vincent, and believe it or not, Duncan Robinson, who had 18 points in game five, 13 points, a majority of those points being huge baskets late for game six. I mean, these are, I mean, probably not Duncan Robinson, but for Gabe Vincent and Caleb Martin, this is the prime of their careers, in my opinion. I've... Like the past three years for Gabe Vincent to come from Miami's roster, again, a G League guy, undrafted guy. I know the narrative and all that stuff, which I, again, I don't think narrative really matters. However, for Gabe Vincent to come in, be the start of this Miami Heat team, an eighth seed, and lead the way as well on offense in majority of these games. These guys are in their prime. Caleb Martin, phenomenal career so far in Miami. Probably the best years he's ever going to see. And again, we don't really know that, you know, not dissing the guy, but he's been playing that type of basketball. It's just, I mean, how can you argue what he's been doing recently? Jimmy Butler and Bam Biles got these guys who are role players turning to bona fide starters on multiple rosters if they wanted to. Bam and Butler need to figure out a way to just get the basketball in. And I'm talking about shots where it's not like in the paint. Again, I like the fact that Butler was being more aggressive, taking inside, not hesitating, not trying to, you know, get the foul to go. But Butler needs to go back to kind of that jump fade away and bam in a bio. You gotta figure out how to get Bam in a bio the ball first, where the Celtics have been able to, you know, do a really great job denying him on offense. However, Bam in a bio's gotta be able to not get the switches, however, take on Al Horford. I know this was a topic last year, too, for a lot of Miami Heat fans. They wanted Bam Adebayo to be more aggressive against Al Horford, take him one-on-one against a 38-whatever-year-old. Al Horford, phenomenal defender. You know, stopped a lot of Joel Embiid, of Giannis Antetokounmpo in the last three years. But they need Bam Adebayo to be, this is the Bam Adebayo game. I don't think it's going to be a Jimmy Butler game. If you ask me, I think the Celtics take it in seven. However, if there is going to be a chance for the Miami Heat, not only do they need Kayla Martin, Gabe Vincent, Duncan Robinson, who I think will show up regardless but they need Bam Adebayo to step up. They need him to step up. And just to end this off for uh, Game 7 itself, for the Boston Celtics, I mean, defensively, they've just been a, you know what we've seen in the regular season now. But Game 6, it looked like they kind of regressed on offense, and the defense stayed through it, which is something that a lot of people talked about through the first three games. You know, if the offense is going well, the defense is going to lack its confidence. And I thought that myself. But this Boston Celtics team was able to show me that they didn't lack confidence, they still stayed in the fire. This game seven for the Boston Celtics, it's going to be close, but I think the Celtics do take this one out in Beamtown for game seven and complete history. But of course, they need to get the job done first. But now we got that out of the way. Now let's go into the Denver Nuggets situation in the NBA Finals. Waiting all this time. Is it a good thing to really wait this long for your matchup for the Finals to come out? I mean, again, no matter what happens, the NBA is going to have the finals to start on June 1st. However, what they did against the Lakers, man, that was ridiculous. LeBron James figures out a way to lose once again after being up 
by I think what, what 12, 15 points in the fourth in game four. And still wasn't able to get it done and close out the Denver Nuggets in game four. Denver ended up winning game four, 113 to 111 for those who've been living under a rock for the past week. Um, if you ask me, this is like this Denver team. Even when whoever comes out of these, I really can't imagine this Denver team not winning the NBA Finals. Now, this is the first ever appearance for Denver in their franchise's 40-plus year history of making it to the NBA and making the NBA Finals. So it's been a long road, a long time coming. And it looks like it's bound to come with some hardware. Because you look at, just in general, across the board, Nikola Jokic, right? 30 points, 14 rebounds, 13 assists in Game 4 against the Lakers. The moment itself was enough for history. He is now right there, Will Chamberlain, leading the NBA in the most triple doubles in a postseason, a single postseason. I apologize, I don't have the specific number. However, just off that, you know, that reference, that statement, Joke is having a MVP year. Of course, he'll win the MVP this year. However, the two-time MVP going crazy in these playoffs. However, the most valuable player in the Western Conference uh, finals and again Jokic he ended up winning it for good reason triple doubles back to back to back to back through four games against the Los Angeles Lakers and the Lakers sweep um, but Jamal Murray Jamal Murray has a couple of 30 point games he had 25 points in the last game and shot better than 50 percent through a majority of these playoffs how do you stop that Michael Porter Jr. just being aggressive not being phased by whatever the defenses sends you how do you stop that Caldwell Pope, he has a couple of big games, especially when Denver's on the run, moving it down in transition. How do you stop that? Bruce Brown, how do you stop that? There's, there's, I mean, again, besides like Aaron Gordon, I really like this roster for Denver in the NBA Finals. So who puts up the better fight? I would say the Boston Celtics put up a better fight. I think overall in the regular season, you saw both of these teams kind of going at it. Um, but the one thing I would say with Jokic inside in the middle I had never seen, again, Al Horford against Giannis, against Bam, against Joel Embiid. I haven't seen Al Horford dominate against Jokic. That's the only concern I have. From the rest of the rosters, I expect Jamal Murray and Jalen Brown, Jason Tatum to go at it on top. As well, Marcus Smart, Defensive Player of the Year last year, doing his best against Jamal Murray. And of course, the switches that they will do with Michael Porter Jr., who I think Tatum, that will be a really great matchup defensively for both players on that. Uh, but when I'm looking at this series, I'm thinking about the Celtics defense against the Denver offense. And I just like Denver moving around the ball. Now, let's say if the Miami Heat do end up winning Game 7 and they go on to the NBA Finals, th- this this isn't going to be a series. And I, I hate to say it like that, but you got Tyler Hero, who, funny enough, could potentially play in the NBA Finals if he wanted to. Right now, his broken hand that he suffered in Game 1, I believe it was Game 1. Yeah, Game 1 of the uh, East first round against Milwaukee. He ended up suffering that broken hand. And now he's at a point where he's doing on-court activities in practice, even doing some practice shots and warm-ups prior to games in the Eastern Conference Finals. However, not able enough to do 5-on-5 stuff. Then you also look at Victor Oladipo, who had an injury that basically sidelined him for the entire season. And Gabe Vincent, who has that rolled ankle, and again, he played in game six, he looked fine, but he was with those two ankle braces. Is this Heat team going to go into the NBA Finals down two to potentially three players going in and already having the situation of struggling to go through the Eastern Conference after having a 3-0 lead and then go and expect to play in Denver, an atmosphere where the Denver Nuggets have not lost a single game throughout this entire postseason and figure out a way to win. If there is a team to do it, it's probably Miami, honestly. The AFC Miami Heat have defined, you know, what an underdog is, which is insane to think about. Now they're on the other end of the foot because the Celtics who are down 3-0 and were the underdog at that point of the series. But the Miami Heat themselves, they have this grit mentality. And I think Bam and Obile will have to be another huge part you know, Gabe Vincent, Caleb Martin, and of course, of Duncan Robinson keeps up the intensity offensively and just attack guys going inside. Like Caleb Martin's attacking Jason Tatum like nothing and getting to the rim easily at some points. Um, how does that go against Jamal Murray? Potentially Jeff Green, Bruce Brown. I think Bruce Brown will be cooked half of the time. I think this will not be a good series for Bruce Brown to go against the Miami Heat. But if you ask me personally, I just don't imagine Jokic being stopped by Bam. 
I don't imagine Jamal Murray being stopped by Butler. I don't imagine this Miami Heat team defending this Denver Nuggets team away from getting more than 115 points a game in this series. If you ask me, Denver should be averaging 120 plus points a game against this Miami defense. Unless it's like a crazy off night, for example, like the Celtics themselves who shot like 20% from three. If it's like a crazy off night for this Denver team, I can't imagine Miami getting a win against Denver. Unless we got a 50 point game from someone. A career high from someone. The Denver Nuggets, the best chance they have is to go against the Miami Heat to win the NBA championship. Now, the worst chances are going against the Boston Celtics, but at the same time, it's still pretty good when you have your offense moving like they do throughout the Western Conference. But if you look at as well, the Western Conference competition, how hard was it for the Denver Nuggets, right? You go through four games against a LeBron James and Lakers team who made phenomenal offseason. And of course, the trade deadline was probably the biggest reason why this Lakers team was able to flip the switch from 13th seed to 7th seed from the play-in. But besides Anthony Davis and LeBron James this series, D'Angelo Russell was off. Jared Vanderbilt did not really do much defensively, in my opinion. Dennis Schroeder did the best he can. He was the better guard in the series uh, for the Los Angeles Lakers roster in that perspective with Austin Reeves as well, who got 20-point games. And Austin Reeves, you know, he wants to stay with the Lakers from what he's been telling media. However, he's looking to get more than $50 million on a contract this offseason. The Lakers, they just didn't have that roster yet. You know, they made great moves. They were able to get past Golden State, able to get past Memphis like a breeze. But man, if you ask me personally, the Lakers, they are not ready for Denver. Absolutely not. The Denver Nuggets in the second round, they end up going through, and it was a pretty, it was probably the most toughest, I would have to say, series for the Denver Nuggets throughout this entire playoffs. Uh, through the second round themselves, they were going up against that of the Phoenix Suns, a team that took them to six games with Kevin Durant. Devin Booker was having the more efficient, probably one of the best postseason performances we've seen in a long while. Um, at least in the sense of a Phoenix player, I would probably have to say it like that. I don't want to go into a big basketball topic. I'd be talking about an hour about best playoff performances in the 21st century. However, six games, and then they started off, of course, against the Timberwolves, who did not have a single shot. Got a game away in game four, but they really did not have a shot against Denver. Now, with the Eastern Conference, as we've seen throughout this entire playoff experience, game seven Celtics... They've been able to show and have been 5-0 and in elimination games. So they're not an easy team to really beat out in elimination. Miami Heat, who had just been frantic, beating teams like nothing, no matter what the odds are, no matter who the opponents are, game in, game out, against an aggressive Knicks team, against a obviously top five, and two-time MVP, Giannis Antetokounmpo, Milwaukee Bucks-led team, and then, of course, this Boston Celtics team, if they do make it out in Game 7. Both of these teams are battle-tested. That's the only thing I really think about for Denver. How will they react to a basketball team where you have guys who have played an entire season together, excluding that of the Phoenix Suns in that situation, have gone through elimination games and have been in forces that have been possibly season-defining, which, of course, Minnesota Timberwolves have not been in that situation yet. Maybe the Lakers in game one when they made that comeback, a little comeback there. And of course, this game four when it went down the stretch. Maybe they got that experience from there. But these are games that are potentially going to happen in the NBA Finals where you're going against a team that will not give up, that has the fight in them. Denver has to go against these teams with a different mentality. And a lot of times in NBA basketball, especially in the postseason, it's the mentality over that of the play and skill. And that's been prominent in the Eastern Conference Finals. So both of these teams who have understand that, hey, we got to get the mind right, they just might come in with the right minds against Denver. But again, we'll figure that one out on June 1st. And of course, on Monday, Memorial Day at 8.30 on TNT, the Boston Celtics game seven against the Miami Heat. But before I end off this podcast, because I know this is getting close to the hour mark, which again, great to have an hour mark talking straight basketball. I mean, I haven't done this type of podcast length in a while. But the last thing I would say, because again, I have to talk a little bit about the Lakers. LeBron James is really considering retirement. Does he do it? I hope so. At least last year. Like Let, 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 let next year be his last year. That's what I'm thinking. To have a whole tour, you know, for fans that want to go out there, you know, for the teams, jump the prices, let the Los Angeles Lakers just 
you know, let him go on his last contract. But I think he does retire in the next year, if not next year. And I don't think it's going to be enough to go play with his son, who uh, recently committed to uh, USC and South Cal. But if you ask me, the Lakers, this is the point of their time where you either go on two situations for Rob Palenka. You go ahead, all chips, push them in, figure a way out to go over the hump. You went to the Western Conference Finals. You made a great couple of moves in the trade deadline of this season. You got, were able to figure out, really, how to win. But you go out of your way. You get moves going, all right? There should be some market for Dennis Schroeder. There should be some market. If you want to go crazy for some of the bench guys you got from Minnesota, being that of Vanderbilt and the others, there is a way for the Lakers to get better, which is the scary part about it. But again, it depends what they're what they're planning to do. It all begins on LeBron. Do you go ahead and get LeBron James his last ride to go for a championship in his last season, which potentially could happen this next season or the season after? Or do you start the process of Anthony Davis? Do you build around Anthony Davis, make an argument with, hey, AD, this is your team, please stay with us. And please get a big contract afterwards. Do you do that? I don't think you're. I don't. I honestly don't think the Lakers are going to go rebuild mode. The way they did last time, it was because like Kobe retired. Then the team just couldn't really figure out a way, so they decided to tank, tank until they got Lonzo Ball, Brandon Ingram, Julius Randle, Josh Hart. Which now foolishly, and I wouldn't say foolishly because they got a championship out of Anthony Davis with the Pelicans trade, but foolishly they don't have a future anymore with those guys. Well, all those guys besides Josh Hart. All-star guys. And, you know, Lonzo Ball maybe not because of injury, but either way. Like, I truly do believe for the Lakers, it might be the smartest thing for the long run. But I don't think Rob Palenka's ready to do that. I don't think Laker fans are ready to do that. They're looking to get one more out of LeBron James. They're looking to keep Anthony Davis on this roster. They're not looking for a rebuild. They're not looking to ship guys out. Especially with guys like, for example, Austin Reeves. The Lakers are going to have to make a big contract for him if they want to keep him. But at the same time, your third best player can't be Austin Reeves. You know what I mean? They got to be able to go into free agency and find at least one or two guys. You know, maybe veteran guys, maybe guys who are going to be there one year, 15 million, if they're able to do it based on the cap and, of course, the availability of what they have next year. But they just got to be able to get one more year in it. That's what I'm thinking for the Lakers. Now, would it be better for the future to rebuild? Yeah, maybe. You know, maybe you get yourself, if LeBron's like, yeah, I'm done for this, I'm done. You know, you build around Anthony Davis. But then again, um, does Anthony Davis want to stay in Los Angeles when LeBron's gone? I, I don't think so. You know, again, I don't blame him if he stays. But for the Lakers themselves, the next two years are going to be really crucial for them. In this offseason, you got guys who are going to be in free agency who are going to be huge names. Of course, one of them being Damian Lillard. Maybe go, you know, make a shot for him. Who knows? But that will be the end of this podcast of Courtside. I thank you again for staying tuned. If you stayed the entire way, thank you. And, of course, if you liked it, leave a good review and follow the podcast on Spotify and your other streaming platforms. Thank you, and I'll see you guys on the next one.